1: Hey, gumshoes. Welcome to episode number eight of Detect This here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash. Hey, Andrew. How you doing,
2: Charlie? Uh, not so well. I'm haunted by either flashbacks or a dream of people in animal masks, but I can't tell if it actually happened or not.
1: Oh, well, sounds like you're having just as bad a week as I am. I accidentally found a baby in my microwave. Oh, my God. It was really freaky.
2: Yeah. Uh, Did anyone in your... Are you living with anyone who would want to do something that disgusting? No, it was just there. It was very strange. I would call... Well, that would be anticlimactic considering that we are detectives but
1: <laughs> I was about to say, call the cops <laughs> <laughs> oh as always you can email the show at detect this at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509 uh, before we get started i want to induct a few more honorary members onto the detect this team all you have to do to become an honorary member is leave us a positive itunes review and I'm going to go through these really quick, Charlie, because we've actually gotten so many new iTunes reviews, we do not have time to read all the individual reviews. So I'm just going to say, Neffitz, Hannah Goop, Stephen Evans, Ian Medina, T.W. Winter, L.A. Mom M.D., Skeptical Mothering, Number 31, Steve's Luis, and Lindsay Luhu, thank you so much for your positive reviews and your continued support of the show, despite all the delays. We love you, we appreciate you, and we're glad that you have appeared at least briefly, in our respective locked rooms.
2: Yes, thank you so much. I did not know, signing on to the show, I was going to be flooded with so many unfortunate distractions that would result in so many delays, and the fact that you guys are still so supportive and uh, understanding as to uh, the fact that we're trying our best here really, really, really means so much, because... I, you know, I don't know about you, Andrew, but I thought I was going to have a lot more free time when it came to uh, this show. And unfortunately, uh, life has not exactly been as relaxed as I've wanted it to be as of late. And I think the same could be said for you.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, when we did our previous two podcasts of Engine Angels and The Briefing Room, we did a pretty good job of getting those out on time most weeks. But then True Detective came along and detected this, and suddenly we were both flooded with all these different things. You know, Charlie, you've got a bunch of issues going on that you're dealing with. I'm working 80 hours a week, and I don't know if our listeners could tell what I've actually... I'm sick right now, and I've been sick for the past weeks. But uh, we're, we're doing our best. We are charging through it as best we can. We, we, we are going to finish this series and get you something.
2: Yes. And and hopefully do a much better job at uh, with our timing in terms of when we come back for season two, because I definitely want to come back for season two. And I'll have learned how to prioritize better by the time season two has come around and not make the same mistakes that I have made this time.
1: You know, what we should have done, Charlie, we should have just from the very beginning, just we should have done live broadcasts. We had no idea how popular the show was going to become.
2: No, nobody listened to our first two shows. Well, I shouldn't say nobody because we did get listeners of our first for our first two shows, but they were not nearly as it it was not nearly as popular as this one. And I don't think you or I expected how many people would be listening in on this. And I'm so grateful for all of the support. And it makes me Feel so bad that I've been So sloppy with this show uh, In comparison to the last two
1: Right so what we should probably do for Season two or whatever podcast uh, We do next in the summer Charlie Is we should probably just broadcast Our recordings live When, when we record on Monday nights And that yeah. way that'll be up there Our listeners will have something that they Can turn to yes. uh, Before we edit it and release It on iTunes so yes. That might be what we have to do but but anyways uh thank you all for your support uh we're pleased to make you honorary members of the detect this team uh charlie i've realized you know what we need we need some honorary groundskeepers uh, preferably ones with no facial scarring
2: yeah the, the it, i mean some light facial scarring but not enough to uh make you uh terrifying yeah no green-eared spaghetti monsters No green-eared spaghetti monsters. We'll have a keep out sign with that drawing with a big red X over that uh, illustration that uh, Cole has in his office. I I guess if you can call that an office. Yeah. (laughs) It's more of a shed.
1: Well, uh, this week we're going to be discussing episode seven of True Detective. Uh, The episode is titled After You've Gone. It was written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Kerry Fukunaga. Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened this week? Sure
2: thing. In 2012, Russ convinces Marty to help him wrap up the Dora Lane case. It turns out Russ broke into Tuttle's home in 2010 and found photographic and videotape evidence of his involvement in the series of murders. Russ claims Tuttle either killed himself or was killed by other members of the cult to prevent blackmail after losing the evidence. Their investigation leads them to Jimmy Lodeau, a relative of Reggie Lodeau and Dolores Jackson, a former employee of Tuttle's father. They eventually confront Sheriff Steve Garacci at gunpoint, convinced he knows something about the missing child, Marie Fontenot. Uh, meanwhile, Detectives Pepinia and Gilbo look for the Son of Life Church, failing to notice that a local groundskeeper has a face covered in scars, just like one of the primary suspects.
1: All right, Charlie, this is the penultimate episode of Season 1 of True Detective. This is supposedly the beginning of Act 3 of the story arc. What did you think? I liked this episode, but I have to
2: admit that I wasn't nearly as engaged with it as I have been with previous episodes of the show, especially in the past couple of weeks. I feel like that since we're no longer in uh, going back and forth between interrogations, it kind of made the pacing a bit jarring at first for me, and it was never boring, but I feel like the show felt different in a way that i found to be kind of off-putting even though i was very entertained and a lot of new information came up i wasn't as compelled and i feel like the show kind of lost by by being so uh plot oriented in this week's episode i feel like the character moments were very trimmed down and that's the part of the show i like the most Um, As much as I enjoy the case, and I found a lot of scenes in this episode to be quite gripping, um, I I liked it. I I just—I was a little underwhelmed, mainly because I was a fan—I was such a huge fan of the past three episodes in particular.
1: I'm actually going to agree with you, Charlie. I think that this is probably the worst episode of the show to date. Yeah. I didn't really— care for it. It, I, I, I shouldn't say that. It's not that I disliked it. It just really it didn't do much for me. Exactly. Yeah. I think the issue is, Charlie, we spent so much of the first act of those first three or four episodes watching Marty and Cole go door to door, go through old case files, do the interviews, make these make these connections that to suddenly have them now 17 years later doing all of that again. I mean, I understand why it's necessary to the story, but it feels a little bit redundant. Yeah. And the thing is we've talked a little bit before about how this this the story is so complex and that there are so many different characters and so many different relatives and family members of these people that they're interviewing all of which could be involved. Somehow, it's hard to keep track of of who is who. Yeah. I think we mentioned last week or the week before that the show has done a good job of giving you just enough that it's easy to follow Mm -hmm. while still being complicated enough that you get the feeling it's a tough investigation and it's probably going to reward multiple viewings. This week, I felt like it went a little bit too complicated. Yeah. I was having trouble keeping track of... Wait, who's this guy that they're talking to? How is he related to the case? Oh, Marie Fontenot, remind me, who was that? Oh yeah, she's yeah. The, she's the uh, she was the missing girl that they mentioned back at the beginning of the season. Okay, and now she's got different relatives and people related to her. It it was just it was all pretty complicated because they, they deliver it all really quickly in the exposition and just expect you to keep up. And again, maybe it's just just me. And like I said, I'm sure multiple viewings will reward will, will be rewarded, and it'll all make sense. But I, it, it just it was a little bit overwhelming for me, Charlie, and hard to connect to. I completely
2: agree, and I have to admit that I felt the same way. I had to watch multiple scenes twice. Like I watched it on HBO Go, so there were several scenes in this episode where. I had to just stop. I couldn't even watch the episode all the way through. And I like had to pause it and then just rewind what I saw to make sure what they explained is what I thought they explained, just to be clear. And I agree with you. Um, It's bizarre because it was such a fast paced episode. And yet it was so fast that it was so hard to. And, you know, I'm glad they didn't dumb it down and give us, you know, exposition that we've been spoon fed before And yet at the same time, I would have liked a little bit more because it's kind of difficult when, you know, if you're watching a film that's a murder mystery and they treat you like an idiot uh, and they spoon feed you everything in the end, then I get pretty annoyed. But here with a TV series that's lasted, we're now on episode seven, so we've been watching it over the course of seven weeks. Some of the details, unfortunately, get blurry for me or murky in terms of, Remembering specific details. And it also, every scene felt really short. And I know this is a weird criticism, but it was like every scene felt so fast to me. Everything, it, it felt like it was in such a go, 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 go type of mo- uh, mode where it was like, okay, we have to do this and then move on to the next plot point and move on to the next plot point. What I liked about um, the past few episodes is it felt very relaxed and very at ease and it was taking its time in revealing certain layers of characters and letting scenes play out at a very controlled pace. And here I just felt like they were like, okay, this is the second to last episode. We have to put as much in here uh, to build up to the season finale because we've almost spent too much time at this, you know, leisurely pace that, you know, works for the show, I think. But I almost felt to me like the showrunners were kind of uh, in a weird panicky mode where they had to get everything all together to build up to, last, to next week's episode. And yet at the same time, it was so much less involving and so much less interesting to me. And I never thought I'd say that because if anything, I thought the show was going to get too slow when we first started watching it. And now it's picked up the pace And I'm just feeling a little disconnected.
1: Right. And I'm not sure. I'm trying to figure out what the issue is. I'm wondering, is it me as a viewer? Because, you know, you and I, Charlie, while we like the show and we do this podcast, we're certainly not as obsessive as some of the fans of True Detective and some of the fans of this podcast.
2: Oh, absolutely not. Uh, So many of our fans put us to shame in terms of research, in terms of uh, clues they've picked up. Uh, Especially this week's episode, I didn't really get that much out of – other than, you know, like I couldn't really make estimations or predict what was going to happen next or pick up on little details because I kept feeling like I needed to keep up. I couldn't even uh, notice certain things that I usually like to go back and notice, if that makes any sense.
1: Right, but we've had listeners that are watching each episode over and over and over again. We had a couple of listeners predict almost exactly – what was going to be revealed this episode, and get it right. So yeah, so yeah, hats hats and off kudos to, to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, Charlie, I'm try- I I don't know if the issue is us that maybe the show is just designed for people like that who are going to watch it obsessively, or is it the writing and directing of this episode, or is it the changing nature of television and how people consume television? Because we talked earlier a couple weeks ago about how maybe True Detective is meant to just be an eight hour movie that you binge watch. And I'm wondering if you just binge watched it all the way through over the course of a day or two, would it be easier to keep track of who was who and keep all the names in place and who was related to whom? And would it all flow together much better than if you're having to wait a week between each episode? Yeah, no,
2: I agree. But and I agree with you about the fact that it did feel like an eight hour movie at times. And that could be off-putting for some people. You know, like for certain miniseries that was that were on HBO, um, the the Todd Haynes miniseries, Mildred Pierce, was technically a four and a half hour movie that they split up over, I think, five episodes, and people said that as a result it felt really jarring. Here, I feel like with True Detective, it kind of had that pace that where it could have been an eight-hour movie that was cut up into, uh, eight episodes. But in this episode, it felt very much like a conventional piece of television to me, where it just felt like it had the pace of a TV show. The pace felt totally different. There were a lot of scenes where I felt like we have been down this road before, we're not really learning anything new, they're effective, but, you know, certain scenes like, um... Them going to talk to the woman who recognizes the shape of the uh, stick structures that they find all over the place was basically the same scene we saw last week when Cole went to go interview the little girl who was uh, abused by the man with the scars. It basically ended the same way, which is, oh, they pick up on a clue that someone recognizes, and then that person freaks out, and then they don't really get anything except that, you know, they're getting kicked out of the building, and... I I don't know. It just felt very different to me this week. It didn't feel like a normal – it didn't sync up in a way that made it feel like it gelled together like the previous episodes had.
1: Yeah, speaking of how the show is repeating certain elements, I'm wondering if that is intentional to a certain extent. Because I think you could make the argument that if time is indeed a flat circle – And True Detective is, in some ways, trying to be very meta and a piece of metafiction. Maybe the intent is to be a little bit redundant and to start repeating itself uh, Mm -hmm. for thematic purposes. In which case, I understand that. I just wish that this episode had gone about it in a little bit more exciting of a way.
2: Yeah. And last week, Yumi and uh, Gwen talked about how we don't think that there was going to be a killer revealed at the end of this episode. uh, At the end of the season, this episode made me feel like, oh, wow, they really are setting us up for a big killer at the end. And you're right. It was so complicated to follow. But I feel like, you know, we're not the only people who are turned off by this episode, Andrew. I read the uh, AV Club's review of it and they gave this episode a C, which I would I was surprised because I wouldn't even go that far to say it was a C episode. I would give it more of like a B minus, but maybe even a B. But the critic, I'm sorry, which critic is it who's doing that show? I believe it's Eric Adams. Yeah, Eric Adams said that the main flaw that or the main thing that turned him off this episode was that Cole has been kind of turned into a stereo uh, into a routine protagonist. They, the, the mystery is gone. He's much more relatable. There's none of that compelling eeriness or uncertainty we get from being around him. He's very much taking charge in, of the case and wanting to get it solved. And he's even got online dating profiles. and You know, uh, there's scenes of him and uh, Marty reconnecting. And that was part of it. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say I felt like we he, it was completely out of character. I mean, Matthew McConaughey's performance is so good that I never felt like Rust was never Rust. I say that he was being a little harsh on that. But I do think that it was part of it. I mean, it, it just didn't feel like it had the same dark brooding sense of mystery or eeriness and whenever it did get eerie this episode it got kind of gratuitous in ways that I found to be really upsetting but not even in a way that was thematic that thematically relevant like I mean we joked about this but uh why did you quit oh I found a baby in a microwave and there's not really much there to that it's just kind of like oh well that's unpleasant and gross but You know, it didn't really add up to much. And then it cuts to the next scene. And I was kind of like, okay, well, uh, that was disturbing. I I don't know. Am I
1: being too critical? I'm going to push back against you a little bit, Charlie. Uh, First, getting back to what you said about Rust. I agree that, yeah, he's not quite as wacky and bizarre as he was in the first half of the series. Yeah, he's not going off on these crazy philosophical monologues as much anymore. But I still think that that side of the character is still there. And we saw that some at the end of this episode when he's talking about and he's reflecting on how his life has just been this cycle of... Of violence and depravity or degradation, I, I believe is what he says, and he says that he's come. He came back to Louisiana because he wants to solve this case. He wants to to, to wrap everything up, and then he's gonna. He says he's gonna tie it off. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out. Okay, Cole, when you say you're gonna tie tie it off, tie off this part of your life. Does that mean you're going to wrap this up and then move on to some new philosophy and some new way of living and a new stage of your life? Or there was a part of me that thinks maybe he was saying, I'm going to wrap this up and then I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to I'm going to tie off my life. Oh,
2: I hope he doesn't
1: kill himself. But <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I definitely think that maybe you could. It's a possibility for yeah. that especially given what we've seen from the characters so far. So, so I do think that there are still some aspects of that depressing philosophical character from the first half of the series. I still think that guy is still in there. And getting back to what you said about the whole thing with Marty and the baby in the microwave, what's interesting about this episode is that Marty and Cole have kind of switched places. Where now Cole is the one who is actually going to online dating sites, at least trying to find a woman, supposedly, and Marty is the one at home really not doing much. He's also the one who has this horrific experience with the uh, the baby in the microwave, whereas until now, all we've heard about is Rust and the horrible things that he saw on the job. Mm-hmm. And also, in this episode, we see Marty actually do some serious legwork. He's the one that goes through all of those boxes and sorts through all the old case files by hand because they're not in the computer. He's the one doing a lot of the work in this episode. So I think you could argue that they have kind of changed places and that also gets back to one of the themes we talked about a couple weeks ago which is do people change and if they can change to what extent do they change i think you could argue that this episode shows that maybe marty and cole have changed a little bit over 17 years
2: yeah they definitely have and uh... This is going to make me sound like such a Scrooge, but, like, I feel like there should have been an episode in between this and the last one where it was more of a transitional thing. Like, they're trying to change, but they're not working because I I know that, you know, the it, it, the jumps in time make that okay, but it did feel a little bit strange that they changed this much in between one episode. Did that bother you at all, or was that is that just me?
1: No, 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 because, see, I, I don't think they changed that much. I I think, you know, we had seen elements of Marty the Good Cop in previous episodes. We got seeds of it. And then here, we really, really get a sense of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that they laid the groundwork for a lot of what we see on screen. I didn't come away from the episode feeling like, oh, no, these are two completely different people. Oh, Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. I feel like these are the same people but some time has passed. I just felt like there were
2: change the changes felt a little too clean. I don't know, maybe that's just me being a little uh I just found the episode to be very bizarre. And don't get me wrong, I enjoyed this episode overall. I loved the shots, you know, it's got it always looks great. The performances are fantastic. The dark humor is still spot on. Uh my favorite uh what really cracked me up in this episode is After And it was actually after a scene I complained about just a couple minutes ago, which is a scene that I thought was effective if repetitive, where they go to talk to the woman who recognizes the symbol that we've been seeing all throughout the um, first season and... Uh, the person who kicks Marty and Cole out of the house goes, she has dementia. You know, she never makes any sense. And then Russ says, yeah, well, it made a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Like, like, it certainly made a whole lot of sense to me. And then she's like, "Uh, that should concern you. And he's like, nope. (laughs) Like, he's just like, yeah, no, that's the, I thought that was so funny. And even Marty you know, made me laugh this episode more than usual with uh weird things that I found like, that I hated myself for laughing at. Like, what do you call a black pilot? What? Uh, a, a pilot, you racist asshole. Like that stuff I thought was, <laughs> you know, darkly funny and, and it caught me off guard. You know, it just, it was just a bit, too much for me to take in. And maybe, yeah, you know, i watch watched most episodes twice. Unfortunately, this week has been so insane for me that I only got to watch this week's episode once. So I didn't pick up on a whole lot apart from the main plot points. I also wish that Michelle Monaghan got a little bit more to do, and maybe she'll get more to do next week. But they set up her character to be in such an interesting position last week, and we got so much of her character last week. And this week, I feel like she was basically just reduced to a minimal amount of dialogue in scenes with Rust and Cole, where she's basically just saying what she did last week to them. And maybe that's just because I love Michelle Monaghan and I've always found her to be an incredibly underrated actress, but. I kind of wanted more out of that character. I feel like it was a good episode, but maybe it's just because this this first season has been so good and so different from most mainstream detective fare that maybe now that we get this good, if not great episode, and I'm just being really nitpicky and I'm just kind of being more critical and not appreciating as many of the positive aspects that a lot of other people may have noticed.
1: I didn't have a problem with Michelle Monaghan in this episode. I I think it was fine, you know, when she showed up briefly to talk to Marty and maybe see him for potentially the last time. And then when she went to the bar to see Rust and he basically just threw her out and, you know, ignored her, I thought that that was fine. But speaking of her character and speaking of, of Marty and Rust, I think one of the weirdest things to me about this episode, and I think maybe what kind of threw me off guard from the very beginning, is that last week, you know, it ended with them just saying, hey, we're going to go have a drink. Yeah,
2: and it ended on a really menacing note.
1: Well, right. It ended on this this kind of foreboding note of, okay, what's going to happen when they have a drink?
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, it's, it's been 10 years. What are they going to talk about? And then in this episode, they have the drink, and I was kind of hoping that it would actually be like a really, really, really long scene of Mm -hmm. just them talking and hashing everything out and talking about what happened with Maggie and Rust and just getting it all out there. And it actually felt very straightforward to me. It felt very yeah. – th- it, it was just very much like, okay, this is the scene where Rust convinces Marty to help him solve the case.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and, and I, it gets back to what you were saying before, Charlie. It felt very much like a plot functional scene than a character-driven scene in many respects. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of what threw me off guard is that I was hoping – for more character moments and more character insights in this episode now that they're finally meeting up after all this time and instead it just like you said it felt like okay well let's put them together and now let's get back to the case
2: yeah there were a few scenes that i found to be really effective i like the dialogue still it still was very disturbing at times. I mean, the, the scene where they watched, where Marty watches the videotape for the first time, I found to be really chilling, even though you know what's going on in that tape and they cut away. And yeah, they cut away from the baby in the microwave, too. So I do want to go back to that real quick. I appreciate the fact that they don't show us graphic violence in that way, but they still know how to get under our skin with letting our imagination fill in the blanks.
1: Right. Actually, on the be, in the behind the scenes clip uh, on the HBO website this week nick pizzolato specifically talked about how with the show their goal was to get under people's skin and be disturbing but but he he would never wanted to bludgeon people over the head with really really graphic violence
2: yeah and, we, and it's not like we get like a shot of a horribly deformed or half blown up baby in the microwave i was The whole concept of that being the reason why Marty quit, I had some weird feelings about because it was just so insanely over the top in terms of how unpleasant it was that it just didn't feel entirely natural. I mean, I don't want to question whether or not that happened. It might have happened. I don't want to know if it did or not. But for the show, it felt a little uh, weird like that. And but but in, in 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 to contrast with that, the scene where Marty did watch the tape for the first time really got under my skin. And almost what got under my skin even more than the images that you see before it cuts away, is that Rust is in the background. Uh and it's not and, and along with Marty's reactions, which are just like him being horrified, is that we know Rust has seen this movie before, and the fact that he's just standing and stare uh standing behind them, staring at the wall. And just not doing anything that I found to be so creepy in comparison to everything else going on in that scene, because we know that what's going on is really fucked up.
1: Well, right. And and I think Woody Harrelson in that scene really sells it just with his facial expressions and and, and, and his reactions. I think he, he did a great job in that scene. And I love how the scene really just hammers home the differences between these two people and also what, what kind of makes them a perfect pair. For each other. Mm -hmm. Because you've got Marty, who, for all his flaws, he loves kids. And he will freak out if anything bad happens to a kid. He can't take it. Meanwhile, you've got Rust, who, as he confirms to Marty in the scene, he has watched that tape all the way through. He has not looked away. He's probably watched it multiple times looking for clues. And as he basically just says, you know what? I can't look away anymore. Yeah. I have to watch. I have to see this. He he is so obsessed with solving the case. He's so obsessed with being able to stare the horror and the meaninglessness and the evil of the universe in the face that he won't let himself respond the way Marty does. And that kind of makes them great for each other. No, no,
2: definitely. And uh, it lost none, the show lost none of its power in terms of the disturbing quality of, uh, you know, it definitely got under my skin like the uh, previous episodes have. And if these actors didn't do such a good job, portraying this uh, this pair, you know, it might not have emotionally paid off and it might seem really exploitative. And, and also the way it's shot. I mean, there are some images in the photographs. I mean, just, you know, the images of, you know, the girl blindfolded with the antlers and the other photographs that they go through are just really chilling. And yet at the same time, uh, I, I don't know. It just, I wanted more. And maybe that's just the show spoiling me. Maybe it's, maybe I got my hopes up too much. Maybe I've just gotten to a point where I expected, you know, something completely different. And because I didn't get what I want, now I'm just beating the episode up for doing something different, despite the fact that it could be good at what it's doing. I don't know. But I know that a lot of other people found this episode to be, while not bad, definitely one of the weaker installments of the past few weeks.
1: Well, I also know a lot of people really liked it. And I think especially people that have been obsessively tracking the show and every character, I think those people were probably able to follow along with everything quite clearly and, mm-hmm. and really get into it. But for me, it, it was just a little bit difficult. I mean, you've got everything with Steve uh, Garachi at the end, and you find out, okay, so he used to be the deputy that received the complaint about the Marie Fontenot case, but then he says the tip came from Sheriff Childress, and Childress is also related to the Tuttles and them. And also we've gotten emails from listeners saying that one of the prison guards in the previous episode, uh, when, when the guy killed himself, one of the guards was named Childress. So everything is connected and even characters that we've never really seen on screen much, we've only really just heard about or seen very briefly in passing they could all be intricately involved and just putting all the pieces together i have found to be to be difficult as a viewer i mean to its credit it does show you how difficult detective work can really be
2: Yeah. And I I totally believe it in terms of like, I'm sure that it's even more complicated than this in real life. I'm sure that, you know, we would have gotten twice as many names and twice as many coincidences. And maybe people know each other, but it doesn't matter. And I definitely appreciate that factor. I appreciate the factor that the show did not keep giving us like quick flashback montages or stopping the show dead in its tracks and being like, Childress, Childress, the police guard, like, you know, like talking in a condescending way. And yet at the same time, I didn't find it to be as emotionally engaging as I would have hoped it would have been. And I felt kind of detached. It kind of reminded me of the way I felt at the end of the film, The Black Dahlia by Brian De Palma, where I was really engaged for the first hour and 30 minutes. And then they brought in a whole bunch of other characters that we had spent no time with who ended up being behind a bunch of main plot points in that film, and I was just like, I have no idea what's going on. This does make a lot more sense than that film, but it it gave me the same sort of like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 I need to, like, pause, I need to slow down and just make sure I'm keeping up with what I think is going on, and sure, that might make me a little dumb to some people, I don't know. I know our listeners are probably thinking it wasn't that hard, and I'm sure a lot of other listeners are thinking, like, you know, maybe they were on the same page, but for me personally, I agree with you. It was just a little too much. I felt like I needed a timeline and a family tree that I needed to sketch down and have with me to follow uh, everything in this episode.
1: Right. And I'm sure that there are people on Reddit who have done exactly that, (laughs) charting out everybody's (laughs) family tree and how everybody's related. And all I could say is good for you. I'm glad you have the time.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, You know, we barely have been finding enough time to do this podcast, which is unfortunate because if I did have the time, I probably would have been able to watch this episode twice and maybe I would have appreciated it more. I kind of feel like, I feel kind of bad that I'm being so negative on it right now, especially considering this is the episode I've been able to spend the least amount of time with. You know, it's not bad television. It's a lot better than a lot of other shows out there. It's just uh, one of those things where It's a good thing. It's a good episode, but it's just not as good as, you know, some of the
1: really top tier episodes we've gotten this season. Yeah, I I would agree with you. The last thing I want to talk to you about, Charlie, before we move on to listener emails, is this reveal at the end. When the show cuts from the perspective of Hart and Cole. And goes to the perspective of the two other detectives, Papania and Gilbo, and shows them, you know, looking for the church and talking to the groundskeeper. And then the show reveals to us, the audience, not to any of the characters. Nope. But to us, that uh, the groundskeeper has scars on his face and is probably the killer, the Yellow King. If not the Yellow King, certainly involved... Somehow and Mm -hmm. actually this is something that one of our our devoted listeners Floyd had predicted actually before this episode aired he emailed us screenshots of this character the character's name is Errol the groundskeeper he emailed us uh, some screenshots of his first appearance at the school and said yeah if you actually look closely you can see the scars so good for you Floyd. Yeah, you figured it out. You beat us to the punch and you beat
2: a lot of other people, I'm sure.
1: So, let me ask you this, Charlie. Okay, one, how do you feel about the fact that apparently it's now confirmed that there's a killer and we know who it is and we're starting to put the pieces together? Do you like the fact that it that there might be a definitive ending? And two, how do you feel about the fact that now we know something Cole and Hart do not?
2: It's a really good point. I mean, well, first of all, do we know that he is quote unquote the killer because... I know that he's obviously... In, we know that he's obviously involved. Right, we know he's
1: invo- He's involved, definitely.
2: Yeah, like I mentioned before, uh, last week, uh, you know, we thought, oh, there won't be a killer revealed and it'll drive everyone insane. And here it was the exact opposite of what we predicted. I have to admit, you know, since it was so difficult for me to keep up with everything, it was a good, like, oh, wow, that guy, we we finally got into this character moment, but it didn't have as big of a satisfying payoff that we finally got into this character. And that is a good point that we are now aware of something that the detectives aren't aware of because it definitely gives the show a different feel and it adds, you know, like before we were like, Oh, we're following through with their perspective. And that is interesting to us because we don't feel manipulated by what other people are seeing and we're following it along with them. And now it did feel a little bizarre, and yet it felt it felt kind of more like, uh, I, I don't know, it, it's kind of like uh, when, you know, Buffalo Bill is Buffalo Bill and Jodie Foster has no idea in Silence of the Lambs when she's in the house. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. I have really mixed feelings about it because I think it's interesting. I thought the last shot was gorgeous and very haunting. With the boat in the background, too, and you know, that uh, the huge shot of him mowing the lawn. Yet at the same time, I feel like it kind of betrays the whole following along with them perspective that we've been building on this entire time, I thought that it might have been a little more satisfying if we found out who that guy was with Rust or Cole. I feel like it would have been a little more suspenseful and tense and earned, in in all honesty. And especially because these cops also think Rust is behind everything, and we don't know if Rust has told, Rust or Marty has told them about this guy with the scars, but if they have, and they just noticed this guy and had no idea, like they were just oblivious to it, then they're terrible at their jobs.
1: Right, and that. I mean, to be fair, when Rust and Marty first talked to him outside the school back in 95, I believe he had a beard or he had some facial hair covering up the scars, so they were a little bit more difficult to see. So, yeah. So that's why Rust and Marty haven't put that together yet. It, what it reminds me of, Charlie, is it reminds me of the end of episode three when we had the shot of Reggie Lado and. That was another instance where a lot of people were like, oh, my God, this is crazy. This is intense. I can't wait to see what happens next week. And I kind of felt like, well, wait, why did we need that? Why could you not just wait until next week and surprise me? I'm wondering if I'm going to end up feeling the same way about the final scene of of this episode, episode seven. Just kind of wondering, like, all right, well, why couldn't we have just discovered this along with Cole and Hart?
2: That's a good point. But at the same time, I feel like it's a little different from episode three because episode three, we don't know who that person is. We don't know what they're doing. All we get is there's a monster at the end of the dream. And then mean, we, just we get know sh- it's Reggie Lodeau. Because- I mean, we know it's Reggie Lodeau, but we don't really know what's going on. We don't know why he has a gas mask or a machete. We don't know where he is. And it wasn't so much of a big reveal. It was just kind of foreshadowing as to this is coming up later, it didn't feel so much like kind of a I don't want to say a cheat because that's such a harsh word and it's not cheating but it didn't feel kind of like a big ta-da moment where, you know, like it's a big, big reveal. It didn't this was clearly a big reveal and I didn't feel like season 3 was so much of a big reveal as so much of a good cliffhanger to tease us and get us to tune in, which this is too, don't get me wrong but it was more of an eerie oh my god, that's creepy as hell kind of moment, and this is a big, like, uh-oh, it, th- this is the bad guy. I bet you can't wait till see what's going to happen to uh, him and Martin Cole this week, like, or next week, and uh, it just felt kind of, yeah, I agree with you. It felt kind of unnecessary. I agree with you that you didn't exactly need that shot of uh, Reggie Ledeau in episode at the end of episode three either, but it got under my skin in ways that this one didn't it kind of took away some of the mystery or the suspense of what we could learn in the final episode if that makes any sense.
1: Well, then to wrap things up, Charlie, let me just ask you this. What do you want to see in the final episode of season 1 of True Detective? What are you hoping is going to happen? You can you can be as specific or as general as you want. It's it's I don't want to just give a vague answer
2: and at the same time i don't want to say i want this 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 and that and if i don't get exactly what i want in all of these varieties of details then i'll be un- unhappy I'm, i don't really know what i want at this point because i feel kind of thrown off balance by this episode and i feel like maybe i need to go wa- i feel like i need to go watch it immediately uh, again and maybe again after that i just want some sort of closure in a way that doesn't feel contrived in a way that wraps up the, that sticks to the themes that the show has been exploring, and yet I want it to leave me not exactly feeling everything's been tied up in a neat little bow. I kind of want some eerie, you know, sense of mystery that's still haunting these characters as to what it all means, or as to, like, you know, the philosophical perspectives of, you know, the way they view the world and how it can be applied to this case. I just want to be left haunted and thinking about it I want an ending, but I don't want it to be clean cut and, well, the story's over. Roll the credits. You know, I want to I be still thinking about this story. I want to still be haunted by these characters. I want to have a lot of stuff to chew on afterwards, even if the story's over.
1: I agree with you, Charlie. Here's my biggest fear. My biggest fear is that in Episode 8 we're going to discover that the five-man theory is correct. And for those of you listening, listening that don't know, the five-man theory is it's a theory that a lot of viewers of True Detective have picked up on, basically arguing that there are five main killers, five people in this cult, in this family, whatever, that are responsible for this. And the reason they give for that is, okay, there's that photograph of Dora Lang surrounded by five men on horseback, in one of the early episodes, uh, Rust makes uh, five men out of the beer cans. In one episode, when he's cutting them up, he makes five men out of the beer cans. hmm And there was one other clue. I can't remember what it is. but But basically, there are a couple of clues that suggest that there are five people involved. And certain writers have actually gone ahead and predicted who those five people are and said, like, all right, it's going to be... Sam Tuttle it's gonna be Billy Lee Tuttle it's gonna be Childress it's gonna be Errol and I, I can't remember who the other person is that, that they say but some some people have actually gone ahead and predicted these are exactly who the five people are if the final episode comes around and that's it it's just like yep it's these five people they solve the case the end I'm gonna be disappointed I, I yeah I want them to bring in the philosophy stuff. Somehow, I want them to bring in the meta narrative. Somehow, I, I want it to be less cut and dry than just, oh, hey, here's this case, and they solved the murder. I mean, don't get me wrong. They've still gone ahead and told this story in a very interesting way, much in a far more interesting way than, than most TV shows. But I, I want something a little bit more ambiguous, I guess.
2: Yeah, and I also want a little more sense as to who these five people are. I mean, we don't really know the mo I mean, we don't need to know the motives if anything, not knowing the motives of these people makes it terrifying. So I don't exactly want a clean cut motive as to the killer saying exactly what, why they're doing what they're doing and have it just be like they're a bunch of redneck Satanists or like, hail Satan, you know, like women are evil and whatnot. But at the same time, uh, you know, there's not, I didn't feel much of a payoff because we don't really know who these people are and that, well, that, that, well, if we know the characters that doesn't, you know, not knowing who the killers are doesn't mean uh, that any sense of eerie mystery can be diminished. I mean, like, they could have personalities or, as you said, philosophies that could get under our skin after we know who they are. We They could have personalities that could really haunt us. Okay, everyone, get your drinks ready. Kevin, the, the, the killer in Seven, you know, once he's there, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know what I'm trying to get at here. Like, yeah, you, I know know, the, 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 you know, the killer in Seven is is revealed, and there's still so much of that guy that, you know, haunts me. You know, like, in terms of the way he thinks, the way uh, we don't know what made him tick this way, but we understand where he's coming from because he's done a very good job of explaining his very dark philosophy to us, even if we don't fully understand where it stems from or what drove him to think that way to begin with. I'm not saying I want... Answers as to who these people are who are behind it in a way where I want to know, you know, what their childhood was like and what led them to kill and whatever. But I want it to be not just some dumb, well, killing's fun, you know, and like, you know, just some weird uh, stereotypical Manson family-esque type of redneck family I don't know didn't it kind of make you nervous that he's like this weird guy that just says like my family's been around for a while like you know that's creepy but at the same time it kind of made it seem a little cheesy
1: I'm gonna tell you right now Charlie we are not gonna get any villain with the personality or gravitas of Kevin Spacey and Seven. I'm just gonna tell you that. Oh, right yeah. Now, okay? Oh yeah, I know, but I like something. Well, here's no, but I but see, I don't think that's what the show is doing. I don't think that is this show's MO. Yeah. I think that Nick Pizzolato is very consciously making a show, not just a crime show, but I think he's making a show about storytelling i think he's making a show about these types of crime narratives themselves he he's taking the archetypes of the female victim and the archetypes of the cops on the case and he's telling it out of sequence and he's playing with our expectations and he's exploring how we tell these stories and why we tell these stories And as a result, I don't think he would do anything so, what's the word I'm looking for, so so artificial as like a hammy, not hammy, but you know what I mean. Like a really charismatic villain with a ton of gravitas who has this big elaborate motivation is going to give these incredible monologues. I don't think that's what he wants to do. I think he's trying to subvert a lot of that and a lot of what we're used to seeing out of these types of crime narratives. I I'm kind of hoping honestly that either they don't solve the case and they they just kind of never figure out the answers or maybe they solve it but they can't prove it. Yeah. Or maybe we the audience at home solve it like be- because of this the final shot of this episode where we know who the killers are, and we have a pretty good idea, but Cole and Hart do not. And I'm wondering how frustrating that would be for people if we knew who the killers were, if we had the god's eye view looking in on this narrative, on this timeline, and we could see everything, but they were still struggling to piece it together and they couldn't do it. Honestly,
2: I kind of love that, but I know what you mean. It would drive a lot of people nuts if this, if it had, if next week's episode had an ending like this, where they're just like, "Well, whatever, we can't solve the case. I guess it's going to be a mystery." And it just left us with a shot like that. That would give me the chills, and I would kind of love
1: that. Well, I mean, that would be perfect because, as we talked about last week, everything with the Yellow King and Carcosa is that if if you read the second act, you go crazy, and you, uh-huh. you, you know, so you, what, you don't even get to the third act. So I think that would be perfect if the characters, to a certain extent, were stuck in Act 2 and they never had a a resolution and they could never stop obsessing and going crazy over this case. I think that thematically that that would be perfect and that would leave people with a lot to think about.
2: Yeah, and I guess maybe that's what drove me kind of nuts about this episode is... Do you think that now that we're getting answers, that, that that that's why we're disappointed?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I Again, it's going to depend on why we're getting the answers. Are we getting the yeah. answers so next week we can get more answers and it'll all be wrapped up in a nice little bow? Or are we getting certain answers this week because next week they're going to twist that a little bit or give us certain answers and not other answers, or give us answers and not give the characters answers. You know, so we'll ha- we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I I was I felt this episode to be challenging in ways that
2: I didn't want to be challenged. I wanted to be challenged in other ways. I didn't want to be challenged by I need to keep up with the plot. I wanted to be challenged in the ways the show has been challenging us to question our own faith and our own philosophy and uh, the murkiness of you know being a detective and having to live with the things that you see and deal with and why people commit crime and why we can't make sense of it. I guess it was so straightforward to me and that we're getting our answers now in such a rapid straightforward fashion that I guess that it was just me having to think about the plot as opposed to wanting to think about other things that the show has hinted at in the past. And I guess that's why it left me kind of cold.
1: Yeah, I I totally see what you're saying. All right, well, let's move on to some listener feedback, because we actually got a lot of emails this week, and I I think our listeners brought up some very good points. As we said earlier, our listeners are much smarter than we are. (laughs) So first, we got a, a voicemail from our good friend and devoted listener of the show, Floyd. So let's see what Floyd had to say.
0: Hey, guys, Floyd here from Ohio. I'm uh, talking about two detectives, of course. Have uh, you guys heard this thing about Christopher Barry, the actor? Uh, apparently, he's playing both roles of Danny Fontenot and the pharmacy killer Guy Francis. as reported by IMDB. So I pulled a quote from him, and apparently it's confirmed by Barry too, and I pulled this from Reddit, so I can't be uh, 100% uh, accurate on its validity, but it sounds legit. It says, quote, I can't disclose anything about the show. I can only say my opinion on what's already aired, and even when it when it comes to that, I have to be careful. I'm not even sure if I can discuss Guy Francis at all, so I won't. But I can tell you both characters, I do play both characters, because IMDb has already told you that, unquote. So the question for me is, why would the show producers have the same act of playing two separate roles? As far as the context of the show itself and of the plot, I thought it was interesting when I thought that Harp has never saw Francis. Obviously, he knew Fontaine well, the um, Cole was the only one that saw Francis's face. I mean, even the security footage, Francis and the guards were walking away from the camera. I mean, I guess you can argue that Cole probably could have seen the similarity as well. Um, but I saw them both, too, and I didn't notice it. I don't know if anyone else did, but it was the same actor. So, Also, just real quick, uh, at the end of the Locker Room episode, I was re-watching that, and the guy was uh, mowing the grass there. If you look, he that kind of patchy facial hair. kind of might indicate uh, facial scarring. And if you see, just as Murray honks the horn for uh, Cole to come back, a guy mowing the grass turns to look at the car, and if he pauses just right, the right side of his face is definitely scarred up. And, plus, if you add that with the stuff that uh, Cole finds in the school later, I think we might have a lead on the other team. Or uh, maybe just a red herring, who knows. Thanks, guys. Later.
1: All right, so, Charlie, how do you feel about what, what Floyd said in that voicemail? Okay, first of all, yes, as we acknowledged earlier, Floyd, you're right— you picked up on Errol, the groundskeeper. We, we bow to you, good sir. You predicted everything. Uh, but but this interesting point, Charlie, about how you've got this actor, Christopher Berry, who played both Danny Fontenot, uh, Marie's uncle, I believe, is the, the disabled baseball player. And he also plays Guy Francis, uh, the, guy, the, the person who killed himself in prison. Why do you think that is, Charlie? Do you think that that's relevant to the plot at all? Or do you think that the creators just liked Christopher Berry and thought he was a talented actor and were like, okay, we'll give you two small roles? Or that they just wanted to lead us down
2: a false path and mess with our heads.
1: That could be it too. This could be really could be part of their plan to just manipulate people. And honestly, it's that type of minor
2: manipulation where it's not in your face type of manipulation that I'm actually okay with because like I know that sounds weird, but if this guy who's playing two roles, if it doesn't add up that he's playing two roles and it's just kind of bizarre, but you know, they want people to notice that and start thinking about it. I find that sort of stuff to be kind of fun in a way that even if it doesn't add up, that's still kind of clever. Um, at the same time, it could just be what, you know, Quentin Tarantino did with Kill Bill, where he had the guy who played Paime and the leader of the Crazy 88s be uh, play you know, he had that guy uh, play both characters. And then I think he had the guy who investigates the uh, who finds the bride. Uh, comatose and the church in the uh, after she's been shot in the wedding play the same guy who plays the prostitute in Mexico and Quentin Tarantino just really liked those character actors and just decided to cast them twice because he just really liked them Um, it's hard to tell. I feel like he's such a minor carrot. These are such minor characters That I feel like it's very much a possibility that it could add up to something and yet at the same time I would not be surprised if it did Either way, it's so bizarre that I can't even really have an opinion on it one way or another. I know that's sort of a cop-out, but, I mean, like, it's hard to make any sort of judgment as to if it means something is that good, if it doesn't mean something is that good,
1: or is it bad, or... uh, I mean, what do you think about it, Andrew? Well, Charlie, here's what I think. I, I honestly, I don't know what to make of this casting choice, but I think regardless of whether or not it's super relevant to the plot... I think what it does is it gets people thinking about how everybody in this story is connected, and you've got so many different families, just family lineages that overlap, and the Tuttles are involved, and the Fontanots are involved, and the Childresses are involved, and they can all be related (laughs) – genetically perhaps honestly you know and, and so mm-hmm. i think it just kind of it gets back to that that idea that somehow there's this family there's this cult somehow everybody's in on it whether they realize it or not because they're all connected and they're all related uh anyways moving on uh, we got an email from jacob he writes enjoy the podcast notice every scene has at least rust marty or maggie This makes sense because everything before 2012 has to be from one of their viewpoints, so any scene not containing them would be fabricated. Which takes me to the very first scene of the very first episode. One or two guys carrying a body in the dark to the door tree. It does not fit if these guys are not Russ or Marty. This is why I believe it to be them, but here's the catch. That scene is 2012, not 1995, and the night of the door murder. Russ and Marty revisit the tree with a body. Why? At this point, I would be speculating. This makes sense with the mythical theme of events reoccurring and the circle on the tree. Thanks, Jacob, for that email. Uh, What do you think of that idea, Charlie? I actually think it's a really cool thought and something I hadn't considered, uh, getting back to that opening scene. But actually, I'm wondering, uh, you know, what if instead of Marty and Cole taking a body there, What if Cole is the dead guy being cremated? I mean, it would be kind of poignant if he ends up sacrificing himself and then Marty drags him out to the tree where that symbol was, since in many ways that's where this new version of Cole was born. This this course that his life took and this obsession that he has really began with the discovery of Dora Lang's body in that field. So it would be kind of appropriate if his life and this season of True Detective end there.
2: I think that would be, yeah, very, b- uh, both thematically relevant and, uh, as you said, very poignant. It would make a lot more sense if it was Rustin because opposed to Marty, because I can't really see any reason for why it would be Marty or anybody else apart from the killers. It's a, it's a good point. And, it, it, it's funny because I completely as someone who loved that shot and who haunt and it haunted me for weeks I kind of forgot about that this week and forgot that it was all going to lead up to that and it's it's a good point I mean how far does that fire extend to how did it get started was it an accident was it on purpose is it the killers is it the two detectives that are behind it it's it could be a lot of things
1: all right moving on John writes. Importantly, a thought here seems to be that weak or hurt people go to religion or a cult for the same reasons. Salvation? Forgiveness? Rust plays on suspects' desires for forgiveness in the interrogation room. He has the skills of a priest. Didn't Rust see a peace in the eyes of each of the dead women in the photos? They welcomed it. They welcomed an end to their suffering. Might weak and damaged women welcome and walk into a cult and offer themselves up, maybe in sacrifice? Didn't Dora Lang say she was going to be a nun? Didn't Rust say he contemplated the cross because of the idea of knowingly sacrificing yourself or something like that?
2: That's a really good
1: point. Thanks for writing in, John. That's a good point. I don't know about you, Charlie, but I find that theory both thematically compelling and incredibly disturbing.
2: That makes it so much more disturbing to me. I, if I know that, you know, sure, they're not taken against their will and they're not suffering in ways that they don't want to. But, you know, like the, the it's disturbing on a psychological level to me that if that is a possibility where the women wanted to experience that type of suffering and subjected it, uh, themselves to it voluntarily. It's disturbing to me on a number of levels uh, because the, it could also be saying, you know, these women um, maybe feel like, you know, trapped by the uh, stereotypes of their own gender and what they represent in terms of uh, spirituality or, you know, their place in society or whatever you want to make of it. That really, that just gives me the chills. Like if that, I know that sounds so weird, but uh, that would make it so much more upsetting to me on a variety of levels.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I I think I would totally be willing to support that theory if the victims were only young women, yeah. if they were all adults, I think that would be a really compelling road to go down. But because there are children involved, I can't really latch onto that idea of consent and willingness to sacrifice oneself. Because clearly, there are children involved, and they were taken advantage of, and they were kidnapped against their will.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can say that the kids could get Stockholm Syndrome, but there's no way when you're five years old, I mean, you're a a child, you're going to fight to survive. You're not going to want, I don't care how mature of a kid or precocious of a kid you are. I don't care. It, it It doesn't make sense on a psychological level for kids to subject themselves to that, even if they have been raised a certain way. I don't think that, you know, they can be raised wrong, but I don't think they can be convinced of becoming some martyr like that. I can, you know, adults be subjecting themselves as some sort of spiritual martyrs, that makes sense. Kids, I I think that's too complex for the psychology of uh, a five-year-old.
1: All right, well, earlier we discussed the possibility that maybe Cole dies and his body is the one being burned in the field. We actually got a great email from Stuart that provides more evidence that perhaps Cole is going to shuffle off this mortal coil. Uh, Stuart writes... As we near the end of the story, I can't help but wonder if there are also clues that Rustin and Cole will die in the act of trying to stop the Yellow King murders. Consider the following. 1. In the first episode, Rust tells Marty he contemplates, quote, the idea of allowing your own crucifixion, presumably his own. 2. Later, he appears to spend considerable time contemplating the grim photos of murder victims who he claims seem to, quote, welcome death in their final moments. 3. Then he ends his despairing account of the boy and girl at Lado's hideout. Quote, Why should I live in history, huh? Hell, I don't want to know anything anymore. This is a world where nothing is solved. Four, while Marty and Rust are receiving their hero's welcome after the Lado incident, their commanding officer, Quesada, jokingly says, Cole, you couldn't manage to get shot? Rust smiles and responds, Next time. <laughs> Five, one more possible clue, though there are others... Rust quotes from Corinthians, The body is not one member, but many. Now they are many, but of one body. Then Rust says, I'm just trying to stay part of the body now. I believe this echoes his philosophy of the insignificance of any particular individual life that he espoused in the first episode, that we are all nobody. But then, by his own admission, being this way made me right for the job. Will Rust go out as a kind of martyr for the sins of bad men? Thanks for the email, Stuart. That's some really compelling evidence. What do you think of that, Charlie?
2: I could totally see that being a possibility, for sure.
1: Yeah, it'd be pretty interesting if Cole, the guy who claims that life is meaningless and we should all embrace death, if he ends up sacrificing himself to save Marty.
2: Yeah, like, you know, we've discussed that Marty's, like, you know, kind of a 19-year-old in a 50-year-old's body. Would it be kind of interesting if, like, the whole thing is his, how he learned about philosophy and the meaning of life through this martyr like figure of Rust, and how through solving this case, and uh, o- it opened his eyes to a bunch of things that he was naive about or didn't fully understand uh, until this point. And yeah, I could, I can definitely see Rust dying. If Marty dies and Rust lives, then I will be stunned and I. Don't know how they could make any thematical sense of that.
1: Well, actually, now that I think about it, Charlie, I I think there is a way that could work. What if it takes Marty's death to change Cole's attitude toward life? I mean, this is a guy who says that we shouldn't have children, that religion is a farce. He seems to have a pretty pessimistic view of humanity overall. But if the guy whose wife he slept with ends up sacrificing himself to save his life, I mean, that defies logic. That's the kind of thing that could make a guy go, hey, maybe I've been looking at life all wrong. You know, I think this whole religion thing kind of makes (laughs) sense to me now. (laughs) Hey, this Jesus guy was on to
0: something,
2: as as David Cross joked about it. What's this book? The Bibla? I better check this Bibla out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that would break the cycle of violence. Suddenly, Cole would have to acknowledge not everyone is completely selfish, and there's such a thing as unconditional love. (laughs) It's all... It
2: has the happy ending of us being a born-again Christian.
1: <laughs> well, uh, a few other people have theorized, Charlie, that, you know, maybe Audrey, Hart's daughter, was abused as a child. Maybe her grandfather is somehow in on it, and that's why she was so sexual as a teenager. And why she was kind of so messed up as a child and playing around with all those dolls and making weird scenes. And some people have suggested that actually Hart's daughters are going to die in the final episode. That the cult will go after them as a way of stopping him and Cole. Uh, What do you think of that, Charlie?
2: I think that that is a possibility that they have been teasing us uh, with. Especially, I mean, we haven't seen her really for the past two episodes, but especially with... You know, the way they uh, set up how he's a bad parent who's not really paying attention to her, especially when she's doing very shocking things for a seven-year-old, like drawing pictures of people having sex and whatnot. I think that could definitely be a possibility. It would be a very cynical, very dark and despairing way to end the show, but it it could leave me haunted.
1: I got to tell you, Charlie, I just don't see the show going that route. It feels a bit too artificial to me. It feels too written, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. (laughs) She actually, she dropped out of college to join a cult. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. Then again, I mean, like, uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene has done effective jobs of young women being confused of finding and of, of, you know, not understanding where they belong in life and finding meaning in a cult. But I doubt they're going to do some sort of Martha Marcy May Marlene twist with his daughter in the last episode. I agree with you there. Yeah.
1: Also, uh, some people have suggested that maybe something supernatural is going to happen at the end, like maybe the Yellow King is actually a real demon who's going to appear or time is going to fold in on itself or or something. And while there's a part of me that thinks that would be really, really cool, uh, based on what Nick Pizzolatto has said in interviews, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think it's all going to take place within our reality and the natural world.
2: I don't think that's going to happen either. I think that they might leave... You know, it it is a show that deals with religion in a way where if they left open some sort of ambiguity as to was it fate? Was it uh, meant to be? Is there some sort of supernatural force at work? that's controlling all of us then could be related to God. I can see that, but I don't think they're going to go as to like literally raising demons up from hell or something like that. No, you know what, Andrew, I actually think that what, what's going to happen is it's all going to lead to the, uh, the temple of doom that Indiana Jones ends up in, in the second movie. And, uh, you know, Mola Rom or whatever his name is, is behind all of it.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. And then he rips out Cole's heart
2: and put him in a cage and set him on fire. And, uh, yeah,
1: That was a movie about kidnapped children. You see, Charlie, it's all connected. Carcosa is the temple of doom.
2: Yeah, although those were kidnapped children that were forced to work as slaves, but not in a way where they're sacrificed to... they're not like a part of the cult. They're just like, what are they doing in that movie? Mining or something? (laughs) Trying to find stones or something? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, yeah, we've gotten a little off topic. Sorry, I had to bring up Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. (laughs) But yeah, that would be interesting if it was some weird time paradox at the end. Uh, That would be interesting if something supernatural came up. I would think that would be interesting if it was vaguely hinting at something supernatural without being full on in your face supernatural forces exist in this universe because honestly it'll kind of nullify a lot of what came before it in terms of its realism for me but that's just my opinion
1: all right well I think that's a good note to wrap things up on uh, that'll do it for this episode we'd love to get your feedback on the show don't forget you can call us at 336-793-2509 or email us at detectthisatfilmgeekcreator.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That really helps us get the word out about the program. And you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. Just go to filmgeekradio.com and under the support tab, you can click the donate button. We also have an affiliates page. We have several partners, including Amazon. And anything you purchase from our partners, uh, if you use our website as the portal to get there, we will get a small percentage of whatever you pay. So you can go to Amazon through FilmGeekCreator.com. Go ahead, pre-order season one of True Detective on Blu-ray. And you can get that for yourself and help us out at the same time. So everybody wins. That's a great way to support us without having to pay anything extra. And uh, don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, and The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast. And uh, speaking of The S.H.I.E.L.D. cast, uh, that is back this week. And uh, by the time you listen to this, our new episode will be out. Uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has been going on so many crazy month-long hiatuses Honestly, it's been kind of annoying, but uh, it's back on the air now, and as a result, so is the S.H.I.E.L.D. cast, so check that out.
2: Yeah, I I, I keep seeing advertisements for it, and I'm like, wait, this show is still on in, it, in its first season? Hasn't it been on since, like, when did that show start, Andrew? November?
1: Uh, it premiered in September. Oh, my God. <laughs> 24 weeks ago, and this week's episode is just episode 14, so that gives you an idea of how many long breaks they have taken. Yeesh. Yeah, it's been weird. Anyways, uh, Charlie, where can people find you online?
2: You can find all of my work at edgeboston.com and moviemezzanine.com. You can also listen to me and Andrew discuss the eighth and final season of Dexter under the Avenging Angels section of filmgeekradio.com, as well as uh, our discussions on the third season of Homeland under the Briefing Room section of filmgeekradio.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at ctnash91. That's C-T-N-A-S-H-91.
1: You can find some of my writing at movimezzanine.com and Patheos.com. Also, I wrote two reviews of the sci-fi show Helix over at CraveOnline.com. And for the next three months, I'm reviewing season two of Hannibal over there as well. If you're a fan of True Detective and you're not watching Hannibal, you should seriously fix that. It is an incredible show, Uh, perhaps even better than True Detective. Uh, Blasphemy, I know, but but it really could be. So uh, check out my work there. And I also co-host a few other podcasts on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix and the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast. So tune into those. Uh, And you can follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message to let me know you're a listener so we can keep talking about True Detective. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And better get those jumper cables ready.